course, like every other teenage kid, I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. When I was 16 years old, I took off and drove across the country to Wyoming, went into the Wind River Range and discovered mountains. In 1973, Yvonne Chouinard founded Patagonia. I never wanted to be a businessman. All I wanted to do was do my craft and climb mountains. So then I had to figure out a way to where I was going to be a businessman, but I was going to do it completely on my own terms. Build the best product, cause no unnecessary harm, inspire and implement solutions to the environmental crisis. Join us at Patagonia.com. You're listening to The Dirtbag Diaries, a production of Duct Tape Thin Beer, with additional support from REI, Fireside Provisions, and Kuat Racks. So this is the seventh year we've put out a Tales of Terror episode. And over those seven years, we've read a lot of stories about scary things that happen out in the woods. We've discovered that there are all kinds of terrifying things that can happen out in the woods, but they share two key ingredients that mixed together lead to a terrifying experience. The first ingredient, number one. I'm out of my house alone. I was alone. It was a single occupancy tent. As I was unable to convince any of my friends to choose history and adventure over booze and tan co-eds. And number two. And... I'm about to go to bed. It was time to zip into my sleeping bag. An hour after sunset, I settled into my sleeping bag. Today, for our annual Halloween episode, we bring you three stories of what happens when you try to go to sleep alone in the woods. First, we'll hear from Ryan Taylor, then from Jason Prinster, and then from Duct Tape and Beer's very own Isaiah Branch Boyle. Happy Halloween, everyone. I'm Fitzka Hall, and you're listening to The Dirtbag Diaries. For me, falling asleep in strange places has never really been an issue. In college, I would contentedly bivy on dirty, beer-stained, cushionless couches, uneven plots of rocky ground, and in between seatbelt buckles, armrests, and window panes. Waking up? That was sometimes a problem. My mind would often wake up in the midst of a REM sleep cycle to find my head, limbs, and torso heavy and motionless. Sleep paralysis. A condition brought on by a wayward sleep schedule, stress, and sleeping on your back often accompanied by dark, ominous hallucinations. It was early, March 2012, and I was pedaling the rolling hills of the Natchez Trace Parkway. I decided to ride my bike along a historic asphalt highway in Mississippi, an alternative to getting wasted on some southern beach for spring break. It was my first bike tour and my first time camping without the support of a car. My plan was simple bike 8 to 10 hours a day, and make occasional stops to see things. Ancient burial mounds, Spanish moss-laden swamps, and sunken pathways of the old trace. Each night, I would stop at one of the many campgrounds along the road and pitch my tent. 
It was a single occupancy tent, as I was unable to convince any of my friends to choose history and adventure over booze and tan coeds. Alas, I had five days and 472 miles to question my choice. Over the first two days of cycling, I grew tired of the crosswinds and the gray Mississippi sky. I obsessively checked the mileage on my bike's odometer and wondered if I'd be able to finish the trip. Tired. I laid down each night and wondered why the hell I wasn't sleeping in a hotel near the Floridian coast. Around 2 a.m. on the second night, a piercing shriek woke me. My body jolted up from a deep sleep. The god-awful noise was followed by the cacophonous din of a pack of coyotes howling and yelping. I could hear them tearing apart their dinner. Nervous, I listened to the nearby massacre. I hoped the wild dogs wouldn't get the scent of the food in my paneers and head towards me. The barks and the howls faded into silence. But I would go sleepless that night, fearing what a large pack of coyotes might do to a lonesome bike tourist. The next morning, the sun made its first brilliant appearance, but the sunshine and southern scenery didn't stop me from stressing about the miles I had to cover. As I rolled into the third night on the trace, the half-moon peeked up behind the Mississippi Live Oaks. It was time to zip into my sleeping bag, and I needed something to take my mind off what might be lurking in the oncoming darkness. I anxiously packed and repacked my food, clothes, and assorted camping essentials. Please, no coyotes, I thought. Exhausted, I stopped scanning the dark corners of the campsite and closed my eyes. Beta brainwaves slowed into alpha waves, into theta waves, and then finally into delta waves. REM sleep. A foreign sound stirred my mind. A low canine groan. Somewhere close. Crunch. Crunch. Dead leaves moved behind my head. Crunch. Crunch. It was my head. Two inches of space. A thin layer of nylon and then darkness. Move. I needed to move. Crunch. Crunch. Concrete. My entire body was as still and stubborn as concrete. Crunch. Crunch. I couldn't even manage to wiggle a toe. I began to panic, but I couldn't shake my body into gear. Crunch. Silence. Silence still. Scared beyond belief, I felt as if I was hovering over myself. I looked down to see my paralyzed body. Crunch! Crunch! From above, I saw tent fabric pushed to a single point behind my skull. Horrified, my consciousness rejoined my body on the ground as I felt a cold and wet snout touch the crown of my head. There was nothing for me to do except abide the contact of the canine visitor. The pressure retreated as I struggled back to sleep with the sound of crunching leaves slowly fading back into the darkness. 
Sun broke through the pines the next morning and warmed my head, shoulders, torso, and legs. I unzipped the sleeping bag and happily stretched my now mobile appendages. A strange calm had somehow overtaken my psyche, and a blueberry granola bar smoothed over the traumatic mental remnants of the night. It was time to roll the sleeping bag, pack the tent, click the paneers onto the rear rack of my bike, and get moving. The Spanish moss waved me forward as I cruised a winding downhill. A smile took over my face. I don't think any spring breakers in Fort Lauderdale got a goodnight kiss from a coyote last night. That was Ryan Taylor. Next up, we've got a story from our contributor, Jason Prinster. Here's Jason. The sun had just dipped behind the mountains as I stared at East Fork Creek. I crossed the creek earlier that morning, but now it had swollen to twice the size and depth. It looked fast and dangerous. The snowfields around Triple Divide Peak had been rapidly melting under the June California sun. I'd left my hour-bound patrol my co-instructor two days before to escort a lost hiker back to the trailhead, and I was eager to catch up with my group. The fast-moving meltwater of the creek felt like fire and pushed at my legs, bleeding the heat out of me. I waded deep and stumbled across polished rocks on the bed, fighting to find a stable foothold against the current. Facing upstream, I shuffled sideways and paddled with my hands. At the deepest point, the water rushed across my abdomen, taking my breath away. Leaning forward, my entire focus was on not being swept downstream. My head was full of white noise from the swollen creek. Hey! A sudden and unfriendly voice had called out. The hairs on my neck stood up and my ears rang. I almost lost my balance looking around. Unlike most of the Sierra, that area was heavily wooded, and the voice had come from the dark lodgepole pine forest on the bank I was moving toward. I looked for a figure expecting a man, someone looking at me, but there was nothing there, just forest, the shadows suddenly deeper. Feeling exposed, I kept moving through the creek, looking into the forest for something, someone. At the far side, I waded out, stumbling onto the gravel bank. My back to the creek, I scanned the trees and the dark gaps between them. My hands shook as I dropped the pack and dressed. Someone was hiding, maybe trying to be funny? But I knew we were some of the first people into the drainage that season. There were no cars at the trailhead and the only tracks in the snow had been our own. No one could be there. I had imagined it. Maybe it was an animal, something. But I stood there listening, and I was sure that I was being watched. Something was wrong. My breath was shallow, and I could feel my heart banging under my wet shirt. I shouldered my pack, thinking that moving would be good. The trail was covered by hard banks of late spring snow, but there were old blazes that marked a trail that led deeper into the forest that was now growing darker by the moment. 
I knew there was an outcrop of rock that pushed up above the forest only a quarter mile further, a small spur that had somehow escaped the grinding glaciers that had scooped out the basin. I could camp there. I knew I wasn't going through the forest in the night with this feeling on my back. The light faded and I walked quickly. I stopped every few feet thinking I could hear steps behind me. One time I looked back, but it made the feeling worse. Like something was getting closer. Like something was watching me and waiting in the thicket of dark pines behind me. I saw the ridge through the trees silhouetted in the evening sky. I climbed quickly through boulders to a sandy slab that had an unobstructed view across the basin, the tips of the pines only a few feet below. The evening sky was clear and there was no wind, no sound. I could see the outlines of black peaks to the east. I tried to shake the feeling off. This was a beautiful place, a good place. I was alone. I set a simple cowboy camp and cooked a meal. The stars brightened as the sun faded and a light wind moved through the treetops. I tried to focus on the beauty surrounding me. An hour after sunset, I settled into my sleeping bag. I stuffed my food bag into my pack because I wasn't going down into the trees to hang it, and I rested the pack under the foot of my sleeping bag. I pulled my ice axe next to me and placed my boots and gaiters near my head. I laid there listening, but there was only silence. Sleep eventually came. I woke at dawn. I'd slept better than I had in a long time, which was strange because in the mountains I rarely slept through the night. I sat up and felt the chill air and saw frost on my pot and fuel bottle. I started water on the stove and began to dress. I looked around for my boots, but they were gone. I'd put them by my head. I knew that. They'd been there when I went to bed. But then I saw them. They were 30 feet away on the far side of the rocky outcrop, sitting together, placed as if on display. I walked barefoot across the sand and rock each step filling me with confusion and then an unease that rose out of the forest. I packed my camp and waited for the sun to rise over the ridge. I had lost my appetite. As the mountains brightened, I dropped down into the forest, looking for tracks, looking for some explanation, but there was nothing there. I left the basin that morning and never went back, but I see it on maps sometimes. And I always think about that place whenever I'm alone in the mountains. That was Jason Prinster. Our last story comes from Duct Tape and Beer's ace storyteller, Isaiah Branch Boyle. This last morsel of life was the hardest I have.
to chew. And it is still possible that I shall choke. I don't know what skinwalkers are. Dude, the skinwalkers are like... I don't know. How I've had it explained to me is a skinwalker is... a person who can also change into an animal. They used to be more of just like spiritual creatures. But then, especially in the Southwest, when white people started coming in and taking over the land and everything, the skinwalkers started changing shape in order to like wreak havoc on the white communities. Trying to like explain it to people that like don't live in that area, they're just like, that sounds kind of dumb. But there's so many stories of watching a person running on the horizon at sunset and watching them change into a coyote or people getting attacked or seeing people in pig skins down by these rivers in the canyons. Yeah, to people down there, you're just like, oh yeah, my house got attacked by a skinwalker the other night, and they're just like, oh, that sucks. So just kind of where your house is. So my house is like close to Durango, Colorado. It's 40 acres, the closest neighbor is a mile and a half away, and they don't live there all the time. It's just up on this mesa top tucked into the juniper trees overlooking the sagebrush field and out in the sagebrush field is where these Native American graves are and we're surrounded on all sides by the Southern Indian Reservation. You hear, like, can you see your neighbors or like the like deer running? Is it just like kind of like walking out into like scrub land or was it like? We can see our neighbors just because we're so high up but you can kind of see forever but yeah I mean super remote like we had to blast the road up to it with dynamite when I was a kid. Nobody comes up there ever. If you walk to the edge of the property, would you feel alone? I don't know. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> you would feel like... <laughs> it's a leading question, I think. Yeah. If you walk to the edge of the property, especially at night, you would feel extremely alone. Do you want to hear the Skinwalker story now? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Just yeah, yeah, I know, I know. Um, I'm out of my house alone. My parents are up in Denver, and it's fall, and I'm about to go to bed, and all of a sudden I just hear this crazy commotion outside. Like something is attacking the house, like things are just being thrown against the windows, stuff breaking outside, and so I'm like, what is, what is going on? So I run downstairs to the gun cabinet, grab a gun, make sure that no one's in the house. Because at this point, I'm like, am I being robbed? And it's not like, like if you called the cops, it would take the cops an hour to even get anywhere close to the house. So it's not like a place where you're just like, oh, yeah, I'll just hang out at my house and call the cops and wait for them to get there. Like, it's definitely a spot where you have to kind of handle your own business. So anyway, I like make sure no one is in the house. And then I go outside in my underwear with a... Why did you go outside? Like, that is... Because I like... Well, <laughs> that is like, like, have you ever seen a horror movie? <laughs> yeah. I didn't, I didn't go, like, far outside. I turned on it the... It doesn't matter. <laughs> it's like two to three seconds outside after you walk through the... Yeah, that's it's true. Like, it's always like... <sighs> okay, go on. Yeah. So, I turned on the light and our patio furniture was just mangled completely like bent and broken and turned upside down, pushed up against the wall, started getting like really creeped out. And so I'm going back inside and there's just this 
white circle, perfect circle, smeared onto the window of our front door. So I see the circle, get super freaked out, go inside, lock all the doors, go back up to my room, keep the gun by my bed, and then try to fall asleep. So next morning, Isaiah wakes up. He wipes the circles off the door, puts the patio furniture back the best he can, and goes about his day. That night, same thing happens. It sounded like a combination of the wind and an animal. It definitely didn't sound human. It was just this grand, grand chaos. It sounded like a bear, like a super, super angry bear rummaging around in your dumpster, but like five of them. And like, they weren't really there for the dumpster. They were just there to like break things. That's kind of what it sounded like. And I already have the gun. So I just turn on the light, look down. There's nothing out there. It's just all the mangled patio furniture again and the white circles back. Like if someone had taken some sort of instrument and just gone. The next morning, I like go out, look for any kind of tracks or any sign of people or humans or animals or anything like that, and there's nothing. There's just this white circle on my window. Again, Isaiah wipes the circle off his window. The rest of the night was quiet. The next day, his parents got home. I left as soon as my parents got back. I was just like, well, you guys can uh, deal with this crazy thing, and I like, told them what happened, showed them the pictures of the circle. They saw like the broken patio furniture and everything, and they're just like, oh, I don't know, maybe it was an animal. And I was like, animals don't just tear up your house for no reason night after night and leave weird messaging marks. Then Isaiah left for a month-long film shoot. Yeah, so I came back, and there was just like a white circle on the front door again, like a month later. And I was like, you guys, like, what the, like, <laughs> why didn't you like wipe this off? Or like, where'd it come from? They're like, I don't know, it's just there. <laughs> yeah, then I just moved up here, so I have no idea. You talked to your parents recently. Um, no. This is a part of the movie where we, like, Google something and then, like, discover some fact. And then you're like, Mom, Dad, you've got to get out of the house. Go right now. What, Isaiah? What are you talking about, Isaiah? <laughs> you just got to go. Click. Mom! Dad! <laughs> This episode was made possible by the good people at Patagonia who urge you to vote our planet. We need to elect leaders at the local, state, and national levels who will defend the well-being of our families and communities. Leaders who support clean water, clean air, strong climate action, and a courageous shift towards renewable energy. Visit patagonia.com slash vote our planet to learn what you can do to support our environment this November. Additional support for the diaries comes from Fireside Provisions, REI, and from Kuat Racks the little company who believed they could build a better bike rack. Check out their lineup of innovative roof racks and hitch racks at kuatracks.com. 
As always, you, our listeners, truly keep the diaries thriving. To pledge your support, visit dirtbagdiaries.com and click the button in the upper right-hand corner. Thank you so much to everyone who has donated already. A huge thanks to everyone who submitted their Tales of Terrors for this year's episode, and congratulations to our two winners, Ryan Taylor and Jason Prinster. Thank you both for all of your work on this episode. Um, And thanks, Isaiah, for your great, totally unexpected Friday afternoon treat of that terrifying tale. Glad you made it out of there, bud. We like having you here. Music today from Shemawound, The Effed Up Beat, Amy Stolzenbach, Little Glass Men, Eden Baker, Coin Locker Kid, Kai Angle, and Apache Tomcat. The tracks are courtesy of Free Music Archive or with permission from the artists themselves. Jacob Bain and Nice Koto composed our theme song, and you can find the links to the artists at our website, dirtbagdiaries.com. This episode was produced by Jen Altschul, Becca Call, and me, Fitzcall. You've been listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. Thanks for tuning in. Ugh, this, I'm not gonna sleep at all. I like writing this horror film. Haha, ha. like, right, dude? It's always people that are like flippant and doubters and are like trying to make jokes and they, they die at least right at the first act to second act of the horror film. And yeah, yeah. When Jen goes to look back at this tape, it won't be there. There'll just be this like weird breathing noise.